As we come this morning to hear God's word, I ask that you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, and we'll begin the reading in verse 13. Um, I hope just to say as, as you are turning there that you have uh, paid special attention. Uh, the liturgy this morning has been uh, incredibly fitting to what I'm going to say from this passage. Uh, has has given uh, a great foreshadowing of, of what we're going to hear this morning. Um, so let us give our attention to, to God's word for us this morning. Again, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Thus far the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let us pray. O gracious Heavenly Father, God Almighty over all, we praise you for your word that you have given us and the salvation announced to us within it. We know that it is only by your blessing that we profit from your revelation. So this morning we plead, enlighten our eyes. Show us just how generous you have been in providing us with more than we would ever ask. Humble us before your word this morning. Let it have the effect you have purposed. Grant all this for your own glory and not our own. Amen. As we begin this morning, as, as we always should when we come to a passage of Scripture, we need to set ourselves in context of what is being written to us. And at first, it, this seems kind of a random episode, maybe. Um, especially as readers, where we get a glimpse from the very beginning of Matthew of who Jesus is. And he starts out with the genealogy and the announcement of the angel to Joseph that this is the incarnate Son of God. And yet we forget that the contemporaries of Jesus did not necessarily have that benefit. This is Matthew writing after, even after Christ's ascension to the church to tell people who Jesus is. So at first, like I said, it may seem kind of odd, but if we take that approach of, of it being within the people of Jesus' time, we start to see a little bit of it making more sense. In addition to that, w throughout the book of, of Matthew, after he begins with, with Jesus being the incarnate son, he, he also highlights specifically throughout his writing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. A refrain that we hear throughout his gospel is that this was done to fulfill what was written before. Matthew is, is going through purposefully to portray Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And finally, as we read through Matthew, um, an interesting question to have in mind is who do the people throughout the gospel of Matthew say that Jesus is? This, this comes up a lot as you read through it, if, if you have that question in mind as you do it, 
The people are seeing the miracles. They know that he's not an ordinary man. And yet they, they, they struggle. They go back and forth. Who could he be? At times after seeing the power, they will even exclaim him to be the son of God. Similarly, after seeing miracles, some of them think that he's actually in league with the devil. They think that's where he's getting his power from. They hear his teaching, and they know that he teaches as one with authority and power. He's not teaching like the scribes and the Pharisees do. He is behaving like the one who is making the law rather than just announcing it. And this brings us to, to what the crowds were saying when, when the disciples answer Christ and they, they give the answers of, of John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. And especially Elijah makes sense in the fact of his ministry being accompanied with miracles. They know that he is a special one sent from God, and yet they're still not putting all the pieces together in, in Christ's actual time upon earth. But then we have Peter's confession and, and I want to focus just for a minute upon Jesus' reaction to it. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response validates his, his confession. Peter has answered rightly. He has answered correctly. And yet we see that Jesus, in, in asking these questions, he knew that the crowds were confused. And he was checking in a way to see if his disciples, those closest to him, had picked up on who he was. And then Peter's confession shows that he had. And, and Jesus further says that Peter is blessed. He says, blessed are you, Simon. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It's interesting that we may think immediately to be critical of those who are thinking that he's John the Baptist. People who had probably seen John the Baptist with their own eyes. And seen Jesus, maybe they had been at the baptism. They'd seen them both in the same place at the same time. They knew very well that Jesus was not John the Baptist. And yet they give this kind of bizarre answer. And, and it would be easy to be critical upon them. And yet Jesus isn't. Instead, he pronounces a blessing upon Peter saying, My father has revealed this to you. It takes divine revelation and, and making opening of the eyes, making us um, to be able to see who Jesus really is. With that in mind, I want to spend the bulk of this morning actually going through what the confession that Peter makes is. And Peter says, you are the Christ. And, and of course, we use the term Christ all the time uh, as a substitute for Jesus, or we put them together and we say, Jesus Christ. And and I don't think we very often think about what it actually means. And as you saw in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the question and answer that we had this morning, it says, what does it mean that he is the Christ, the anointed one? And that's all that Christ means. It is a term that means anointed. It's the same term in the Old Testament that is Messiah. That probably doesn't clear things up for you very much. Um, so what does it mean to be anointed? What, what is the significance of that? Well, anointing was something done when a person or object was set apart for a purpose or a use or a task. It is at the beginning of something being called out for God's special purposes is anointed. 
And then who, who specifically is anointed in the Old Testament? Well, I want us to spend today thinking about three offices that received anointing. And those three offices are prophet, priest, and king. And we see that um, that Peter's confession is, is that Jesus is anointed. He is called for a certain purpose. And with these backgrounds of the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king, that is what he's confessing. And in the Old Testament, not only were prophets, priests, and kings anointed, not only do we have them, but there was promises throughout the Old Testament that there would be a final, a better, a greater, eternal one that would come and hold these offices. Moses himself says that there will be one raised up like me after me, and you will listen to him. In Psalm 110, God swears that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he also promises to David that there is that his throne will be established forever. Even though we have these, these iconic uh, men that fulfill these roles of Aaron as priest, um, as, as Moses and Elijah as prophet, and as David as king, they, they aren't the final one. They aren't the ultimate one. There's promises within even the Old Testament that there will be one that comes and fulfills that role. And that's exactly what Peter is confessing. He's saying, you are the hope that we have been looking forward to. You are the one that has come to fulfill all of this for us. You are the one that is better than Moses, better than Elijah. You are the one who has, will have a kingdom that is greater than David's. You will show wisdom greater than Solomon. And you will make a sacrifice better than Aaron ever did. So now I want us to go through and we'll go through these offices and, and, and illustrate what their task was, how they performed that, and how Jesus exceeds what came before him and fulfills it completely. So we're going to begin with, with the prophet. And often we think of prophecy, we think of, of telling what is going to happen beforehand. But first and foremost, the prophet was to reveal the will of God. They come to the people and they speak on behalf of God to the people with a thus says the Lord. And we think of Moses uh, as he comes down from the mountain and he brings the law and the covenant to the people. He is, he is speaking on God's behalf to the people, revealing to them what God's will for them is. Later on, we think of Jeremiah to the, to the Babylonian exiles. Be patient in the city in which you are. God will bring you back, but be patient. Go about your life and wait for God's rescue. In addition to revealing God's will, they, they condemn the people for their idolatry. Again, we think of, of Moses coming down from the mountain only to find that they have already made golden calves and have started to worship them. And he reprimands them and he condemns them for their sin and idolatry. Also, Isaiah, if you ever want to see um, 
some less than politically correct reprimanding in the Old Testament. Read Isaiah making fun of people for cutting down a tree and making an idol out of part of it and burning the rest of it to make bread. He doesn't, he doesn't hold back. He condemns them for their idolatry. And finally, they also call people to repentance. Think of Jonah going to Nineveh and telling them of their sin and calling them to repent. Or Isaiah calling, calling the people to destroy their idols. So then our question is, how does Christ fulfill and go beyond this? Well, first, God, or first, Christ not only speaks on behalf of God, but he is God himself. As we said, he is the incarnate son. He perfectly reveals who God is and God's will for us, being himself God. We read that he is the perfect representation, the perfect example of, Christ, of God in, in Hebrews. So he is uniquely able to reveal to us with great authority exactly what God's will for our lives is. And he does that especially in revealing that God's will is that we believe in him, we believe on him, we place our trust in him. Think especially of John's writings in the Gospel of John and even in his letters, that God's will for us, his desire above all else, is that we place our trust in Christ, that we may have eternal life. In addition, he calls us out of our idolatry. We think of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees. He reveals to them that their ultimate hope was in their observance of religious practice. They had made an idol out of being, out of fulfilling all the, the rules that they had added on to the Mosaic Law, all the rituals that they had added. He reveals to the rich young ruler that comes up to him that his hope was actually in his riches. He trusted in the, the blessings that God had given him rather than trusting in God himself. And he even pries farther in telling the people who would come after him that they must choose him above mother and father, spouse and children. He says, if you do not love me more than these... And finally, he calls us to repent. After he would heal, he would tell them to go and sin no more. Change your life. Even, even in his call to the rich young ruler, that was a call to repent. Give up your idol. And of course, we know that he walked away and he, he did not. But Christ called him out from his sin and idolatry. And called him to repent. So this morning, how do we respond to Christ as prophet? Do we believe on him as the example and, and giver of God's will that he has announced truly God's will for our lives? Do we put our faith in him as the true representation and as the true teacher of God's will for us? Do we let him identify and condemn the idols in our lives? That's a tough one, isn't it? When we read, just as I said earlier, that we have to put Christ above everything. Do we let him actually pry into our lives and pick out the idols 
and, and acknowledge them? And do we daily walk in repentance? We all know that, that even whether you're a believer or not, you sin daily. Do we repent of those? Do we heed his call to repentance? Next, let's think of, of Christ, of Jesus as priest. The priest's job, he was called by God to make atonement for the sins and to cover the guilt of, of his people. And we know that this was primarily done in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system, animal sacrifice. The people would bring their, their spotless lamb or bull, or depending on their resources, maybe a dove. But they brought it to the priest, and the priest would go, and he would make the sacrifice and make the atonement with that. And then he would come back, and he would pronounce absolution for the people. He would pronounce forgiveness to them. God has forgiven you. You are, you are again made right with God. Of course, we think of Aaron as the first high priest in his, after the sacrifices, his sprinkling of the people to signify that they were clean. Along with this, the, the priest was also the one that would pronounce people clean after having diseases, especially leprosy. They would come and they had been considered ceremonially unclean. They could not enter the temple but when they were finally healed, it was the priest who could said, you are welcome back. Come back and worship God. You have been pronounced clean. Also, the priest is a mediator. The people could not approach God directly themselves as sinful people. They had to go through someone else. And the priest served that role. The people would bring to them their sacrifice, and then he would go and, and present it to God and bring back like I said, the, the absolution, the forgiveness that they had received. And finally, the priest also intercedes for the people. We see the priest praying for the people and, and reminding God of his goodness and of his promises. Here again, we think especially of Moses. And, and just as a little bit of a side note, Moses is is a unique individual within the Old Testament in that he fits into multiple of these categories. Um, Moses coming at the beginning of the, of the covenant with Israel, he, he holds a unique place. And I use him as an example of both a prophet, which I think primarily he is, but he also does in ways fulfill a priestly function at times, especially until Aaron is, is placed as the high priest. But Moses... His intercessions are probably the most dramatic that we see when God is ready to destroy everyone that he brought out of Egypt. He tells Moses to stand back. I am going to destroy them, and I'm going to start anew. But Moses pleads with him his own goodness and his own reputation. He says, the Egyptians will hear that you could not keep this people, that they were stubborn, and you could not, you could not deal with them. He reminds God of his own glory and says, for your own name's sake, do not execute this, this judgment upon them. He pleads God's promises and his own goodness back to him. And yet again, 
we, we ask, how is, how is Jesus the better priest? How does he go above and beyond and exceed all of them that we see before him? And in the first way, we see that, that Jesus is forever our priest. We know that Aaron died, and it was carried on by his son as the next high priest. But we're never looking for another priest again. Jesus is the final one. Secondly, <clears throat> Christ is not only our priest, but he is actually the sacrifice himself, isn't he? We don't bring our gifts to him and then he presents them on the altar to God. He, he went to the altar and presented himself to God in our stead. You think about in the Old Testament how costly it would be for the people to bring their gift, how much of a burden it was for them to bring their own gift to be sacrificed, their own animal. We don't even bring that in this case. Christ, he brings his own life his own blood, and then he presents it to God on our behalf. He makes the sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, turning away God's wrath and earning God's blessings for us. And finally, it should be clear that he's a better intercessor for us. He is God himself. He is the second person of the Trinity. What is the Father going to deny to him if he comes and makes request? What a great comfort this is, especially with how weak our prayers so often are, that we have Jesus pleading on our behalf for us, making sure that what he has earned is ours. So again, we ask, how do we respond to Jesus as our priest? Do we trust in his completed work upon the cross? as the final and perfect sacrifice for any sin we ever have or will commit? Do we go to him and humbly ask that he apply his blood to our daily sins? And then do we approach God with boldness, knowing that as the perfect mediator, we are now welcome in the presence of the Father because of Christ's work on our behalf? Do we go and, and boldly ask him for everything that we need? Finally, we come to the office of king. We know that the king, as we still see in, govern, in governance today, that the king rules and governs over a people. And especially in the Old Testament, this was to be done with a, a fulfilling and keeping of God's law, as well as a practice of justice through the use of wisdom. Of course, we see David as our, our great type of who a king is in the Old Testament. As he united all the tribes, for which when you look at the Old Testament history, they were united as all 12 for a very short period of time. But David sat over all 12 tribes, and he ruled with a great zeal for God's law. We know that he is declared to be one who is after God's own heart. As well, we see Josiah, who returns the people, or returns the law to the people, 
as he seeks to, to execute and to keep God's law within the nation, putting away the high places, the places of, of worship, was, was a great sign that a king was, was a good king. We see throughout all the kings listed, there, there's usually a tag of whether or not they followed God or whether they led the people astray. And that was, that was whether they were a good king or not. Did they, did they seek to implement God's law? But another a factor that, that goes into a king, we see especially from Solomon in, in what I said with executing justice through wisdom. And, and I love the example of Solomon when the two mothers come to him, both claiming to have, um, one of them having lost a child and both of them claiming the live child for themselves. And Solomon uses wisdom to make sure that justice is served. And, and I want to elaborate on that in just a little bit when we get into how Jesus is better, but I'll leave it at there for now. And finally, or Additionally, he defends the people against their enemies. The king is who leads the armies of Israel against their enemies. Again, David being the great warrior king, he is the one that establishes Israel within the land and then passes on, is able to pass on a time of peace to Solomon. Even though David didn't get to experience it in his own life, Solomon reaped the benefits of, of David defending the kingdom. And finally, the king will provide peace and rest. Ideally, there would be peace and rest. When the enemies have def been defeated and the people, the people don't have to be afraid. So again, we ask, how is Jesus the fulfillment and, and the betterment of these? We know that, that in the Psalms, as well as other places, Christ has promised a kingdom. Uh, especially Psalm 2, I will give you the nations. He's promised to be the one who will sit on the throne of David for the kingdom to be established forever. But then we see his cross is what I was talking about as the execution of wisdom and justice. Or the execution of justice through wisdom. And let me spend just a couple minutes here trying to explain what I mean and go back to the example of Solomon and the two mothers. Solomon is presented with a case where two mothers are claiming that the other one killed their child and that the live child is their own. And apparently there were no witnesses. There was no one that could testify to who truly was the mother. Um, we don't know the full situation, but, but Solomon wisely says cut the child in half justice is that they each have half knowing that the real mother would not allow her son to be killed just so that she could have um, to not admit sorry just knowing that the real mother would not allow her child to be killed and it worked out. The mother says, give it to her. Give it to the other one. And, and that's how Solomon knows that, that she was the true mother. Similarly, there's a problem presented with sinful man and a holy God. We know that God is perfectly holy. He's just. 
He cannot look upon sin. And yet we know that man is sinful. If God just allows sin to go unpunished, he's no longer just and holy and pure. But if he executes the justice that we deserve, we'll be consumed. We can't survive it. We can't live through that. We can't pay the price of it. So wisdom finds a solution to this, doesn't it? Jesus comes as the God-man. In his divinity, he is able to withstand God's judgment against sin. Therefore, God is still just because the punishment for sin has been executed. But man also has hope now because that sin has been paid for. And he has a way back to God. He has a way back to being in God's favor and being in covenant with him. This is what Paul says when he says in Romans that God is both the just and the justifier. Do we see the great wisdom that was required in this? Again, we see Christ has defeated our enemy. We see in the cross, again, it seems paradoxical that that he appears to lose. And yet in giving up his life and then raising again from the dead, he defeated Satan and sin and death. And finally, we look forward in his second coming that he will provide for us perfect rest and peace and a new heavens and a new earth wherein he will reign. So again, we ask, how do we respond to Jesus as our king? Will we submit to his rule in our lives? He is our king and he's a good king. For he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He is not like Solomon's son who puts unbearable burdens upon the people. Within his victory, will you fight against sin and the devil in this life? Knowing that, that Christ has defeated him and now we have the ability to fight. And will you seek justice? Trusting that one day justice will be perfectly served, but will we seek it even now? And will we eagerly look forward to that second coming and to the peace and rest that will be in the new heavens and the new earth? And as we wrap up, what better way to begin 2017 than by contemplating all that we have in Jesus? Let him teach us God's will. May we listen as he condemns our idolatry. And may we respond when he calls us to repentance, putting away that which is sinful and displeasing. May we this year believe that he is, that his sacrifice is sufficient for all of our sins, for all that we will ever do wrong. May we find great comfort this year, even in our weak and feeble prayers, that he is interceding for us before the Father, constantly in the presence of God, pleading on our behalf. This year, may we submit to his wise rule in our life. May it give us 
great energy and zeal to fight against our enemy, to fight against the sin that remains in our lives, to fight against the temptations that constantly bombard us. And may we look for and plead for and pray for that perfect peace, the second coming of Christ. When there is, there is everything that is here is made manifest. Everything that he has done for us is made manifest. And lastly, will we worship God for his wisdom in bringing about our salvation? Let's pray. Magnificent, wise, holy Father, we see your love for us that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son Jesus, the Christ. We with Peter confess that he is all we need and have been looking for. In him we have all that we could ever that we could never attain for ourselves. We pray, reveal to us anew who he is. May our understanding and love of this truth transform us, that we would confess his name before the world, that we would offer our whole lives as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to you, and that with confidence we would fight against sin and the devil. Sin and the devil. All glory and honor be to your holy name. We pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.